it's good to be here. Um, and and uh, it's great to get to know Alan and Fiona. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. I've never thought of this before, speaking in a church in North America, in Assembly North America, because, well, you just can't get there, or you can't, but you have to fly. But but this is this uh, Zoom idea is, is wonderful. Let me tell you a bit about, about us here in Belgium. I've got some pictures I want to show you. I'm going to... Uh, share a slideshow with you, which also go, will go into our, um, my sermon for today. My, um, I was born in Vancouver, as, as Alan mentioned. My wife was born in Montreal. We met in Chicago and got married in London. So we've been all over the place. But um, uh, we've been in Belgium since 1985. Uh, it's a small country, Belgium. I'll show you a picture so that you can see what Belgium is like or the size of Belgium. It's about one and a half times the size of New Jersey. So that'll give you an idea what the size is of the country. It's not a big country, 11 million people. We live in the northern part of the country, and I'll, give, I'll put a little, my cursor right there. This is where we live right here, just above Hustled in the in Flemish-speaking part of the country. There are three official languages in Belgium, Flemish, which is the northern part of the country, and French on the southern side of the country, below Brussels. And then in the small corner over here, uh, I can't find it, over here, they speak German. And that's all history behind that. But anyway, there are three official languages in Belgium. Uh, so I say we live in the Flemish-speaking part of the country. Belgium is predominantly Catholic, Roman Catholic, but mostly nominal. Um, very few people attend church in Belgium, although they would probably still consider themselves uh, Catholic. Um, involved with all aspects of, of assembly work and preaching, teaching. Uh, we're just busy working right now to get our youth camps together. Joanna's uh, involved with Bible studies. I'm also involved with evangelism. So it's a varied work here in Belgium. When we came to Belgium, our two oldest children were, came with us. Josiah was almost three years old and Paula was only eight months old. Here's a picture of our, our family. This is our family in Belgium now. Um, from I don't give you all the names because you won't remember them. Although I could give you a test at the end of my end of my uh, sermon and see if you remember any names. But uh, right in the middle there, and Josiah, uh, Joanna is right next to me, and she's holding Amelia. These are our four children who still live in Belgium. Um, this is this is Anna right here, our youngest. This is Daniel, our youngest boy. This is Stephanie, the middle child, and Polly is our oldest girl. That Paula and Peter have six children. Uh, Anna and Yessa have two. I'm holding their youngest child, Amelia, who was born in October. The next picture is a picture of our son who lives in Toronto. He's our oldest son. He was born in Canada, but raised in Belgium, but moved to Canada, Toronto several years ago. These are his three children, Corey, Edith, and Miles. His wife, Christine, took the picture. So that gives you an idea just who we are and where Belgium is. Now that's a very short thing, but it just gives you an idea of our family and a bit of our background. I'd like to read with you from God's word. If you have your Bibles, please look at, with me at Deuteronomy chapter one. Um, this is a wonderful story. And there's wonderful stories in the Old Testament that help us learn important lessons. Um, I have to write most of the stuff down because I'm not used to speaking, preaching in English. So 
if you notice every so often I hesitate, it's because I'm thinking still in Flemish, but speaking in English. So it sometimes causes hesitation. It's not to do with the computer, it's me, my brain. Uh, we want to read from Deuteronomy chapter 1, and I'd like to read from verse 19. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, and Moses is speaking, or he's writing here, and he says, Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back us word of the way by which we should go up and enter the cities which we shall enter. And the thing pleased me, and I took 12 of your men, one man for each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came into the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. Then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it back to us. And they brought back our report and said, it is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt saying, the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of, of the Anakin there. Then I said, you do not be shocked. Do not fear. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the ways, way in which you have walked until you have come to this place. For for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you and on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and a cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. That's the text from Deuteronomy chapter 1. And it has to do with how we deal with discouragement. This is a story or a picture of the damage that can happen when discouragement begins to rule your heart and shape the way you see the things in your life. If it's given, given room, discernment, or sorry, discouragement will tell you lies that have the power to destroy your life. How do you deal with discouragement? And Paul writes in Romans chapter 15 that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we may find hope. And this is one of those stories that was written about what happened back then, but that we might see an example of it. It's a caution, it's a warning um, for our example and instruction, because these people are just like you and me. And that's one thing you notice when you read the Bible, you think this happened thousands of years ago, and yet people haven't changed. Uh, emotions haven't changed. Reactions of people haven't changed to difficulties. But I mean, I came into a text who didn't tell you the, the context. This is the story of, I mean, you know the story, the Jews coming back out of Egypt after being enslaved in Egypt for years 
uh, and they made the trek through the wilderness 40 years, and now they were camped across from this land that God had promised them, the promised, the promised land, the fruitful land. And uh, you read in what we read just now that they sent 12 spies to check out the land, and it was dotted with fortified cities and populated by people who were bigger and taller than the Israelites. And they brought back a report of the fact that there was so much good in the land, but there was also things that were not so good. The promised land, even though Moses had reminded them that God had carried them and protected them and provided for them in the wilderness, the people were completely discouraged. And they wondered, why have we come this far and have to deal with difficulties? They had questions. They were complaining. Why did God lead them this far only to let them fall into the hands of a much, powerful, much more powerful people? It didn't make sense. Why wasn't the promised land already empty and ready to move into? I'm sure these are the questions that they dealt with. Why didn't he warn them beforehand? This is what's going to happen. Why didn't you tell us before and so we could prepare? He didn't tell them. Why didn't he tell them? What are they supposed to do now? It was a difficult situation that they were in. They felt like they couldn't go back. They didn't want to wander around in the wilderness like they had wandered for 40 years. They couldn't go forward because there were fortified cities. There were these tall guys and we couldn't possibly fight them. We're just small people. And they were caught between a rock and a hard place. And you run into a wall in your life. They couldn't push forward and they couldn't go back. So they had to wonder what was going on. And it was very discouraging. And I think we have to be honest, life is like that. Sometimes we have moments of discouragement. It's not a sin to be discouraged. We'll all be called with difficult surprises in our life because God's plan for us doesn't always fit what we expect. Very different than our plans. We face enemies sometimes that are bigger and we'll be tempted to wonder why a good God would bring us into situations into our lives that aren't good at all. They don't seem to be good. How can God bring this into my life? This doesn't seem good. So it isn't a sin to be discouraged. However, if we let discouragement rule our life, then we come into problems. This can be very deeply discouraging and cause spiritual damage. That has to do with how do you see, how do you look at life? It's tempting to give way to discouragement. It's tempting to let it be the lens through which we see life. And we need to fight these temptations. Discouragement is natural. I think it's important to see that. Discouragement is natural. It's something that we deal with every day. Some of you may be going through difficulties right now. And you have moments of discouragement. It's not sin. It's just allowing those things to take root. And I want to draw your attention to two of the most damaging results of allowing discouragement to take root in your heart when you're in the midst of suffering. It's mostly when we're in the midst of suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, financial, those are often the moments when we have discouragement. And there's two things I think we need to deal with. Discouragement opens, discouragement opens your heart to a lifestyle of complaint. And complaint opens your heart to accusations against God. This is what happened in this story, God hates us. The problem was horizontal, but they saw it as vertical. 
It's a vertical complaint. It never stays horizontal. The problems were actually with the people in the land, but it's interesting how quickly it, it, it changed to it's God who hated us. He brought us here. Because the Lord says in verse 27, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt, Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites. Again, discouragement is normal. There will be moments when life seems impossibly hard. Moments when you're confused about what God is doing. And then how do you deal with that? How do you deal with those discouragements? Again, how do you see life? It really has to do, most of us are wearing glasses where if you're older, you're wearing glasses. And we all wear glasses in our own lives, even though we don't have a pair of glasses on our nose. We see life through a lens. And chronically discouraged people see more wrong than right. More darkness than light. More injustice than justice. More hate than love. And although you think you see things accurately through that lens, discouragement can uh, change or distort your perspective and causes you to see things worse than they really are. But what's the danger of, of complaint? If you believe that God is in control of the grand movements of life, if you believe that God is in control of the small aspects of your life, then no complaint is purely horizontal. If you're bothered about the insensitivity of your doctor or the lack of friends you have or the lack of sympathy from your friends or attention from your friends, it's not just horizontal that your complaint is. It often ends up being vertical to you. Your, your, your complaint goes towards God who, in, who ordained these things into our lives. See, this is the thing. We have the idea that only God brings the good things in our lives. But he often brings other things into our lives to teach us the importance of trusting him. And in this story in, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it didn't take long for this to happen. The vertical problem was there. They were discouraged about, about these tall people and these fortified cities. And it changed from grumbling about the situation in their lives to grumbling towards God. This is what we didn't. Verse 27, and you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. And so when we experience these things, we've gotten beyond simply saying that life stinks and we've gone to complaining. And where we say, and this is what they say here, actually, my life stinks because God isn't good. That's what they're saying in verse 27. My life stinks because God isn't good. It's a critique on the character and purpose of God. And we stop praying because we think, well, if he's not good, why would I ask him anything? And so we get this distorted view of reality. It's the lenses of our glasses that we're looking through. It's a distorted view of reality. This is a distorted view that we have. There's a, power, there's a power to bend your perception of reality and the God who rules it. And we need to challenge our way of thinking. And this is what the Bible constantly brings us back to, challenges our way of thinking. How do you think about things? Is God to be trusted? The question is asked all throughout the Old Testament, is God to be trusted? And the answer is a resounding yes, he is to be trusted. 
but we have to recognize that this this tendency towards complaining this tendency towards seeing the negative thing has uh, can have an effect in our lives the israelites were wrong this the discouragement had distorted their view and it was about to control the way the way they re respond to their leaders and to god so vertical complaint never stays horizontal it ends up going vertical and then it leads to moral paralysis it's easier to complain to be thankful it's a funny thing eh? it's easier to complain than to be thankful now i should ask everybody here is this true with you and i think the most of us will have to say you're right yes it is easier to complain than it is to be thankful it's easier to notice all the things that are wrong or missing in our lives and to recognize and celebrate all the ways we have been blessed and are being blessed but it's something about human nature it's easier to complain than to be thankful and it, the reason why is because of selfishness the selfishness and self-righteousness of sin tends to make us think we are entitled i'm entitled to this this is an entitlement thing and we tend to dislike obstacles or living without something we want we want it and we think we deserve it it's not just the millennials who think this i know that some people take talk about boomers i think but it's it's all through our society all through all age groups we have this idea we're entitled and selfishness makes life about us our happiness our comfort and getting our own way and if you re recognize that it's not just horizontal but it's vertical and we're not just complaining about situations in our lives we're also complaining and we're disappointed with god because he's not giving us what we think we deserve this is interesting we only keep god's command and follow his wisdom because we believe he's good that's the reason why we are obedient that's the motivation behind obedience it's the only motivation behind obedience because we believe he is good it's not based on his promises as much or his rewards but rather on his trust our trust in his goodness is god good again the question that runs through the old testament and the old and the new testament is god good is he faithful to his promises if you don't believe that god is truly holy or righteous or just or loving or merciful you won't trust his promises so that's the question that constantly gets asked and we have to ask ourselves too is god good an example matthew chapter 20 look open look, we're not going to read the story because it's too long but matthew chapter 20 is a well-known parable that jesus tells and it's talking about god's goodness and how we experience god's goodness and this story is wonderful i mean but it, it, it doesn't taste very good i remember when i was a child my mother would give us um cod liver oil in the winter the winter months we would get cod liver oil from my mother and she always said to us this is good for you well it was really difficult to believe that because it didn't taste good this wasn't good um, and even during the whole day you would burp and you would the taste of cod liver oil would stay with you the whole day even after lunch you had your your sandwiches you still had this taste of cod. but she was right because it was good for us because we didn't get sick well this is this is like cod liver oil 
Matthew chapter 20 is like cod liver oil. Uh, you know the story. This, Jesus tells a story about a man who has a, a vineyard, and he, um, he goes out to get people to work in his vineyard to, to, to pick his grapes. And he, he talks to somebody, at, uh, some men at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, or laborers, doesn't say if they're men or women. Um, and he tells them, look, this is how much I'm going to give you to work a 12-hour day. They were 12-hour days back then. And then, and then he realized he didn't have enough people, so he went out again at 9 o'clock and again at 12 o'clock and again at 3 o'clock and again at 5 o'clock to get more people to work in his vineyard. And then, and then he went to pay all these people. Well, this is where, well, the unions would have a real hard time with this story because it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And so he ends up paying the people who worked one hour the same amount as the people who worked 12 hours. And this is not fair. We have a very clear image of what fair, what fair is, and this is not fair. This is not an honest wage. I mean, not paying enough is wrong, but paying too much is also wrong. You can't do that. And, and I, I love it because at the end of uh, the story in chapter 15, sorry, chapter, verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish? Jesus, or the, the landowner asks. It's God who asks this, actually. Uh, what I wish to do with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am, in my translation it says generous, but in my Dutch translation it says because I am good. And this is where we often have a hard time with it because he's good. He's saying, this is good. This is my choice. And we often have a hard time with God's goodness. It's not fair. And this is what I notice here in Belgium. This is the biggest obstacle that people have to belief in God because they say, uh, I cannot believe in a God. And then they fill in the, the blank. I cannot believe in a God who. And they feel that there is some injustice somewhere. And, and what they're saying actually is, I can't believe in a God who doesn't play by my rules. He doesn't play by my rules. It's not fair. And, and they don't realize just how arrogant that is. Just incredibly arrogant. You play by my rules or else I won't believe in you. Is he good? Is he good? This is the question, again, that gets asked throughout the Bible. Is God good? And ultimately, we have to look at Christ to understand the goodness of God. And though there are circumstances in our life that are difficult, and again, it's not that everything is wonderful. Yeah, I was going to use a famous expression there, but you won't understand it, so I won't use it. Um, uh, he, he is good, and he has shown his goodness in his son who came before us. Are we going to play by his rules? And do we recognize that we don't know everything? We don't have the big picture. We can look at a painting, a very large painting, and we often see just that much of the painting. And there are times we look at it and think, I don't understand this. And he sees the whole picture. He sees the whole picture. Can you trust the God who sees the whole picture? Can you trust in the goodness of the God who sees the whole picture? And this is the question that gets asked again through scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Is he good? A life of courageous obedience, no matter what comes your way, is always rooted in a heart that trusts God. And we have to ask that question every day. Do I trust God? Do I trust in his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness? 
and that he has my best in mind. Despite what comes my way, and there are things that come our way, we get sometimes thrown fastballs that really take us back. But ultimately we come back to he is good and he is to be trusted. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible statement that they say, because the Lord hates us, my goodness. Can you imagine? They've gone through the desert. They've been in the wilderness 40 years. They've got manna. The Lord has taken care of. They saw what happened in Egypt because the Lord hates us. Surprising how quickly it moved from a horizontal problem to a vertical problem. They saw no reason to entrust themselves to him or follow his commands. It was rebellion. And it was a lifestyle of complaint. And it throws us into a state of moral paralysis. Here's a few statements that I've heard over the years since I've been working here in Belgium, and I'm sure you recognize them. What difference does it make if I... What good would it do if I... And you fill in whatever it is. Maybe you said these things yourself. It's really hard to read your Bible and in your heart you're not sure if God really cares for you. It's hard to go to church and sing those hymns and songs when they seem so far from what I'm dealing with in my everyday life. I can't stand going to my small group and hearing how wonderful those people's lives are. I don't pray anymore because it doesn't seem to make much difference. I'm not sure God's actually listening. I know I'm supposed to be thankful, but I just don't find much to be thankful for. I'm tired of hearing how how good God is when every day I'm dealing with stuff that no one else would ever call good. These are all literal, no, it's all in Flemish, but this is all literal things I heard from people. If God really loved me, why would he ever? Every day I get up and think, where are God's promises now? This is a life that's full of complaints. And again, I don't want to lay a burden on you. When, when life hits you with a fastball, it's very difficult. And it's, it's part of our human experience. We have disappointments. None of these people woke up, by the way, one day and decided to quit following Jesus. There was no conscious decision. Uh, defenses just basically wore down because of the burden of suffering. There was just difficult things that came into their lives. And it was difficult, very difficult. But... Complaint increasingly was replaced, sorry, complaint uh, increasingly replaced gratitude and therefore obedience. When you're not not, uh, um, thankful, it's very difficult to be obedient. And what I appreciate about this is that God knows this. It's not new to him. It's not like he's wringing his hands in heaven thinking, oh my goodness, what's happening now? What's happening now with these people? It's not that he doesn't know what he's going to do. He has brought his spirit into our lives. I gave a message last week on the Holy Spirit. It was, it was Pinkston, uh, Pentecost, Pentecost last week and gave a message on the Holy Spirit and just amazed by what he did. It wasn't that he was standing on the, on the sidelines cheering us on. He came into our lives. Himself, God himself came into our lives, has come into our lives and he fights for us even when we've given up fighting. So he's not discouraged by it. He's not discouraged by our discouragement. He 
He wants to stand with us and help us through this. This is what's encouraging about the word of God. See, I'm with you. We have to think biblically. Discouragement will come. To think biblically. It's about thinking through these things. Several things that are important to remember. And all times when we, when we deal with discouragement, God is sovereign. He sees all things. He has all things in control. I was reading this morning. I read, um, spoke in Zwartbad yesterday, sorry, this morning in our Zoom meeting from Ezra chapter 1, where God moved Cyrus, the king of Persia, to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. This was not a king who believed in God, and yet God moved him. And you may look around you in the States, and I know things are going on in the States that are really shocking, and you may think this is chaos, but God still is in control. He still sits on his throne. He's not disturbed by what's going on. He knows what he's doing. It seems like chaos, but God still sits on his throne. He has all things in control. God is good. Now, again, I can't add to what I've already said, but he is good. God does not play hide and seek. He's not playing hide and seek. What does he want from us? Micah chapter 6 tells us, He has told you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Because these are part of who he is. He's expecting something of us that he's also shown us uh, who he is and how he deals with us. Do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Nothing happens in your life that hasn't first gone through his loving fingers. Things don't just happen in your life. It has first gone through his loving fingers towards you and me. There's no surprises as far as God's concerned. No surprises. There's a quote from Cordy Ten Boom. You may never know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. Wonderful quote. It's not in the Bible, but it's a wonderful quote. And you see the wisdom in that because he wants us to bring us to that point where we realize, I don't need anything else. I have everything I need in him. And we're so pig-headed that we continue to look for life outside of Christ. And so it's his grace in our lives that he brings us to that point. And often he brings us to that point through difficulties, through suffering. I know it's as far as I'm concerned. I'm not saying that I've reached that point. But yes, it's wonderful to realize that's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to reach in every one of our lives that we totally understand all I need is Christ. All I need is Christ. You're never alone. This is thinking biblically. You are never alone. The text uh, from Hebrews chapter 13, he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. So that we can confidently say the word, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And this is, this is a quote from the Old Testament of Psalm. But it's echoed through the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I will never desert. I will never forsake you. He has put his spirit in us. And he, was, he will always be there. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness is the next one. Everything revolves around his glory. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about his glory. I was reading uh, yesterday in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul talks about the wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. And he said, to the praise of his glory. I was thinking of the Dutch word. Thinking um, 
to the praise of his glorious name. And everything he's done for us is to the praise of his glorious name. It's all about his glory. And again, it's so important for us to recognize that and to think. Um, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the rest will be added on to you. This should be clear, but maybe it's not always. Sin will destroy you. I mean, we see it here. Sin will destroy you. And it's, it's God calls sin, sin because it will destroy us. It's not because he was wondering in heaven, well, what shall I call sin? I'll see that's list, that list is sin and this is not. No, he saw very clearly what's good for us and what's not good for us. And he calls something sin because it ends up destroying us. That in our, in our thinking is important. Don't worry. And I almost add to that, be happy, but I don't want to say that because that's just a song. But, but don't worry. Philippians chapter 4. Um, sorry, I don't know what it is in English. Ephesians 4, uh, sorry, Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything in, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. It's the whole of the Sermon of the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, don't worry. And the last one is, we are made for eternity. This is a short time on this earth. In a little while, we'll be with the Father. Listen to that song the other day from Amy Grant. In a little while, we'll be with the Father. Can you see him smile? And we sometimes forget that because the world around us doesn't think this way at all. The world around us thinks, I only have one life to live. Go for the gusto. It was a Schlitz commercial, wasn't it? Something like that? Yes, go for the gusto. Well, because we only have one life. Well, this is not true. It's not true. You are here for a short time, but you are made for eternity. Do you think about heaven? Do you talk about heaven? You should talk about heaven. Remind each other of these things, Paul says in Thessalonians. Encourage each other with these things about the fact that we have a heavenly hope. And my last slide, and I'm over my time, count your blessings. See what God has done. Such wisdom in that. Count your blessings, see what God has done. And we need to do that consciously. And it's not just about counting your material blessings. We have material blessings. It's about understanding the blessings of the gospel. Begin there. Begin there with what he has done for you on the cross. So we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper every Sunday. It's a wonderful thing. It's just wonderful because we get back to this is what it's all about. This is my biggest blessing. He has given me everything. So that's your, your due project for this week. Count your blessings and see what God has done.